Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Ever since the dawn of our world, idolatry has taken grip in the heart of man. But in most recent times, idolatry has kind of taken a new twist. There's a new age. It's a digital age. There's become a new rising tide out there today of what is known as virtual idol worship. I'd like you to meet Hatsune Miku. Now, she has become one of the most popular singers in parts of Asia. Very popular. But there's something unique about this pop star. See, she isn't a human being. She is described as a virtual idol, a holographic star. Her band members are human. You can see them on the side there. But she's not. She's just a program and a hologram. In Japan, her popularity is huge. She equals the popularity of the Sonic the Hedgehog, that iconic Sonic the Hedgehog. And her name, it actually gets more than 22 million hits on Google. That's how popular she is. She's performed all around the world with thousands and thousands of fans packing stadiums in Paris and in London, even in Los Angeles. Some of the most common descriptions about her come from her growing fan base, and they say things like this. She's rather more like a goddess. She has human parts, but she transcends human limitations. She's the only great post-human pop star. And other comments by her fans say things like, it doesn't take a good human to sing a song. Yeah, or they say this, those of us who are into this like dealing with machines more than people, and I can kind of understand that part, but many are glad she's not human. As one fan said, she's not going to die or she's not going to turn into Miley Cyrus where she becomes a drunk or something. Fans have, sadly though, now created their own comic books. They've created their own fashion. They've created their own video games. There are over 3,000 Miku songs that you can buy on iTunes or on Amazon. And YouTube, YouTube has dedicated hundreds of thousands of videos just to her. There is even Miku porn, just to show you the depravity of man. Miku porn and devotional texts that are sold in the bookstores where you can find devotional texts about her. Miku is the prototype of what is being called out there as disembodied entertainment. Hear that catchphrase disembodied entertainment. It is hard to believe what the heart of man will lust after. Jeremiah 17, 9, some of you know this verse, it tells us this, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We live in a world of idolatry and it doesn't need to be a hologram on a stage, does it? Because idolatry is of the heart. Idolatry comes when we turn an earthly thing into a God and worship it rather than the God of creation. 
or to simplify it, to boil it down, whatever we place ahead of God in our lives can become our idol. It could be money. It could be the stuff you hoard. It could also be the lust of power, control. People make idols out of almost anything and everything nowadays. Sex, drugs, even just success in life. The constant drive to be seen as successful in the eyes of others. Others have that constant focus, that constant drive of looking for attention or fame. And these can all be idols, and our idols can become the tools of Satan. You know, the world is filled with the countless stories of people who have chased after these things, and it has destroyed them. But if we understand, if we back up and understand that idolatry is an issue of the heart, then we can honestly admit that we all struggle with temptations toward idolatry. Our pride and our arrogance turns our devotion from God towards something else. And that something else always seems to come back to this. It focuses on me, myself, and I. And it's easy to become wrapped up and entangled with the world, but when we follow that path, it always leads us away from God. And for the godless, unregenerate, it leads to the deserved wrath from a righteous judge in heaven. And for those who are made alive by Christ, if you want to chase those idols of your heart, don't be surprised when God's chastening hand falls upon you, because he will do, he will do whatever it takes to restore you to fellowship with him. And sometimes that means taking your home away from you or your job or your health or even, sadly, your life here on earth. The very next verse in Jeremiah says this. It says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. See, there's a righteous God in heaven that is looking to be worshipped by his people. He's looking to be honored by how we live. He wants our time. He wants our hearts. He wants us to live in his goodness and his grace. Revelation 9, it takes us to the idolatry that will be found in the tribulation. If you have your Bible this morning, would you join me in Revelation 9? We start with verse 13 where it says this. Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. John heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar in heaven. Horns, if you've been studying with us, especially on Wednesday nights, you already know that horns represent power. They represent here the sovereignty and judicial government of God. This voice could have been that of an angel or it could have been the voice of the Lamb of God. And this is the altar of incense that we saw in chapter 8. From this altar, the prayers of the believers ascend before God. Now, this release of the angels is connected with the prayers of God's people for vindication on earth and the desire for God to usher in his kingdom on earth. We are still looking at these trumpet judgments of God. This is now taking place in the second half of the tribulation. When the fifth trumpet judgment sounded, we saw the opening of the abyss, that bottomless pit. And the demons who are now locked up will be set free. You remember from last week in our text, they'll be set free for a period of five months to sting people, to torment people, to drive them mad. 
and they will swarm the earth like locusts to torment people. But then at the blast of the sixth trumpet judgment, John is describing four angels of death who had been held captive near the Euphrates River. Now, when these angels are released, all the forces of hell will break loose on earth. Step by step, the restraining grace of God will be removed from this world, allowing Satan, allowing his demonic forces and unregenerate mankind to destroy both the earth and each other. I want you to notice with me that this scene of this judgment centers on a particular part of the world that we know today as the Middle East. Much of the book of Revelation centers on Israel. It centers on the surrounding nations. The Middle East, if you are alert at all in life, the Middle East is a ticking time bomb, ready to explode and move the whole world into the end times at any moment. To be sure, we have to say, though, that the times and seasons of the end are in God's hands. He can usher them in tomorrow, or he can wait 100 years or 200 years or 300 years. He can wait that long. But I hope you've been seeing in our studies that the book of Revelation can be understood, that God's people can absolutely and should understand the book of Revelation. Just let it say what it says. Take it at face value. If it says the great river Euphrates in our text, we should have in mind no other river but the one that flows right through the heart of the Middle East. There's no need to make it say something else. It starts all the way up there by Turkey, flows down through Syria, right through the center of Iraq, and then joins the Tigris before emptying into the Persian Gulf. The Euphrates River was the eastern edge of the Roman Empire, and to this day, it is the dividing line between east and west, between what we would call the Near East and the Far East. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible that happened in that time in the Euphrates River region. Genesis 15, 18 teaches us that the Euphrates River is the eastern boundary of the land that's promised to Abraham, the land promised to the people of Israel. It was included in the territory given to the four great world powers of Scripture. It was in the region of the Euphrates that man first saw the light of day. That river was one of the four that flowed out of Eden's garden paradise, where Satan made his attack upon the human race. Here the miseries of sin were introduced into the human race. Here the first murder was committed. The first martyr was slain. Babylon arose. Here the Jews would be dragged into bitter exile. And here we see four special fallen angels of Satan in bonds. Now the four angels released at the Euphrates River are never identified specifically as angels of heaven. And they're never told to us that they are wicked demons. So you have to look a little deeper. But the context alone teaches us something right away, that these have to be four high-ranking fallen angels because no angel of God still serving him would be bound. So it just makes sense that that's who we're talking about, is fallen demons. These demonic influences could be the fallen angels behind four of the ungodly nations in power during the tribulation. You know, if you think about it, demonic powers stand behind the nations. We see this, that they stand behind the leaders throughout history. 
This we see in scripture. Daniel 10 tells us that an angelic messenger fought against the prince of Persia. Daniel mentioned the prince of Greece. Demonic beings influencing the leaders of these powerful, powerful nations. And here in Revelation 9, we have four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, these four demonic beings could be linked to four of the nations who are going to oppose God, his people, during the tribulation. And the day is coming when the restraints holding back their influence will be cast off and they will be let loose to oppose the people of God. But even, but even these demonic beings, even these demonic angels cannot act or move until God allows. I want you to notice that. They serve Satan, but they cannot act apart from the sovereign permission of God. And that you can see very clearly in verse 15. It says that God has planned. It says that God has appointed their release for what? A specific hour, a specific day, a specific month, a specific year. It should not be understood in verse 15 that this is talking about the duration of this judgment. That's not the idea. But rather that this judgment will come at the appointed hour, on the appointed day, in the appointed month, in the appointed year. Rest, Christians, in that confidence that whatever comes our way, it is not only known ahead of time by our God, it is sovereignly directed by Him according to His plan and according to His purpose. But one of the things that we're about to see, and I want you to understand this from Scripture, one of the things that we're about to see is that those things that work together for the good of God's people, that doesn't always mean the good of everybody. That doesn't always mean the good of everybody. Because when these angels of death are released, they go out to kill a third of mankind. See, verse 18 is going to tell us they don't just try to kill a third of humanity. It's going to tell us that they succeed. They do it. They kill a third of mankind. Now, a third of mankind today, that would be over 2.5 billion people. But it's even worse, isn't it? It's even worse because when you back up a step and you remember from chapter six that by this time, the people who are alive on the earth have already suffered a lot of death. They've already suffered a lot of destruction. So go back to the teaching there in chapter six, Revelation six, eight. It told us. So I, I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death and Hades followed with him and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death and by the beasts of the earth. Let's review. The rapture happens before the tribulation even begins. But one fourth of the earth is killed in Revelation six and another third is killed in Revelation nine. Start doing the math. No wonder God has restrained these demonic angels for centuries. And I hope this helps you to understand God's grace because he has been holding off these relentless wrath of these demons for all this time. He's been holding them back all this time for you and for me. But when God allows them to be released, a dark, dark cloud of demonic wrath is going to quickly descend upon this earth. And if you add up the judgments that have already happened in the book of Revelation up until this point, together with this judgment at the sixth trumpet, you are talking about roughly one half of the earth, one half of the population on earth that was alive at the beginning of the tribulation will be alive at the end of this judgment. 
That's a lot of death. That's billions of people. You remember that Christ said this in Matthew 24, and I keep bringing this out, and I'm going to keep hammering on this until the day I die. Christ said, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever will be. And unless, notice the rest of this text, it says, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Certainly, the great tribulation will be without precedent. And it would end in the death. That's what Jesus is saying. It would end in the death of all mankind if it were not stopped by his second coming. Now, Satan's demons will be released and billions of people will die. And verse 16 tells us now, it says, Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and brimstone. A wealthy father took his son on a trip to the country so that they could see how the poor people were living. And they spent two days with this farmer and they spent two days with this farmer's family. And on his way home, his father asked his son if he had learned anything about poor people at all. And the son said he had learned that their own front yard stretched just down to the road, but the farmer's front yard stretched beyond the hills. And the boy said that he had learned that their swimming pool at home was rather small, but the farmer had a stream that ran through his property that never seemed to end. And then the boy said much of his life he sits at home bored, just completely bored. But this farmer's family, he, they're never bored. They always had a garden to tend to and wood to cut. And at this, the son says to his, his father, he says, thanks, dad, for teaching me how poor we are. We live in a land. You should know this by now. We live in a land of the spiritually poor. But most people, most professing Christians today do not even know how spiritually poor we are because the focus is on the idols of their heart. Perspective is a good thing. That's why Revelation is here. Perspective is a good thing. It opens our eyes to God's perspective. See, most Christians don't even like to read the book of Revelation. And most preachers don't like to teach it. But I think of the words of Christ in Revelation 22, 7, where he said, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The book of Revelation gives us perspective into the plans of God. It exposes the idols of our hearts. I want you to consider, I'll hit right at one idol this morning. I'll hit at a couple. Consider that the average American spends 608 hours a year on social media. 608, 1,642 hours a year on TV. That's a lot of TV. That's 2,250 hours a year that is spent on nothing but trash. And I haven't even mentioned video games or all the time that people spend texting. 2,250 hours. Another study that just came out recently showed that we touch our phones at least 2,617 times a day, a day. Our phones, our phones are the biggest idols that are out there today. 
You, you can tell it that they're idols. You can tell it with young people. Hear me, young people, because when you can't put the phone down, even when someone is in the room talking with you, you have an idol. Put the phone down. You want people to respect you. Put that phone down and talk with the people in the room. Facebook and Instagram, they've become idols. The average person in the United States that uses Facebook is spending almost an hour a day on Facebook. Why? You're wasting your life. Don't tell me you don't have time for God. Do not tell me that. Studies have shown repeatedly that the more time people spend on Facebook, the more their own mental health and outlook declines. I'm going to choose to spend my time better. I am on the things of God with his people, with my family, studying his word and working here together for the glory of God. These are nothing more than idols of the heart because people want to feel loved. They want to feel popular. They want to feel connected. They want to feel accepted. But boy, they're looking in all the wrong places. One young teenager in L.A., when confronted by the idea that social media is destroying our lives, she was asked about it and told that, hey, if it's such a waste of time, she should just get rid of it, get rid of it, get it out of her life. And the girl's response was instant, like that. She said, no. She said, because then I would have no life. And if that's your attitude, I'm sorry, you already have no life. You don't have a life if Facebook is your life. You just don't know it. It's like saying, my idol's destroying me, but if I get rid of my idol, then I disappear. People have become enslaved to your phones. Put them down, get rid of them, do whatever you got to do. Get a flip phone, I don't care, but quit worshiping these things. Some of you give it your constant focus, looking for that little screen to light up, always distracted, never able to focus on God, never able to focus on the people around us, loving the people in your lives that are right before you. Because they become our masters and we surrender our privacy. You know, these things, do some research. They're built, they're designed to addict us. The algorithms are designed to addict you, distract us, and deceive us. And I'd say revelation, revelation is here to give us perspective. And it's, it's here to give us God's perspective. So find your idols, Christians, whether it is TV, whether it's phones, whether it's social media, whatever your idol is, get rid of the stupid thing. There's coming a day when God is going to judge his people at the judgment seat. And there's also coming a day when God is going to judge the lost because they give their idols more attention than God. And it's described here in Revelation 9. And I hope you're not living your life like them. Now, John mentions an army here in verse 16. This army has been commissioned to carry out the deadly intentions of the four angels on earth. And the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. Now, the commentaries and the pulpits are filled with people who doubt that number. But would you just read verse 16 with me again? John says at the end of it, he says, I heard the number of them. He's not leaving us guessing, is he? He says, I heard the number of them. But before you start adding up in your mind the population of India or the population of China or any other country in the Middle East, put this all into context. These are armies that are of the four demonic angels who have already been released from the Euphrates. That 200 million strong army is responsible for carrying out the mission of these demons. 
And in verse 17, John describes the army of the horsemen in some detail. He used the best descriptions he could, but they are unlike anything that this world has ever seen. The heads on these horses looked more like the heads of lions, he says. John didn't tell us anything about the riders of these horses other than the color of their armor. And I want you to notice that the colors on the breastplates of the riders match the colors of the plagues that come out of the mouths of these horses. Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone, the text says. The breastplates were fiery red, deep hyacinth blue, and sulfuric yellow. Now, hyacinth, what is that? It's a flower in the Middle East, and most often it's just like that. It's very blue. And then look at the next two verses, starting in verse 18. It says, by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By what? By the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads and with them harm. These are going to be three distinct plagues. And these plagues will be responsible for the death of a third of mankind. But it's not just the heads of these horses. They have power to bring this death. John said also in verse 19 at the end, he says, For their power is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. Now people have tried to identify this army of horsemen with helicopters, tanks, fighter jets, Maybe it's an F-16, maybe it's an F-22, maybe it's an F-35, maybe it's Space Force. I don't know. I'll tell you what, we can't put current events into the text. No more than the first century Christians could. You see, they could have said it was the Parthians, the world's most dreaded Calvary at that time, because they came from that region and they had a tough, tough military. The Parthians were the only soldiers that the Romans could not and did not defeat. But it wasn't the Parthians, and it's not tanks, and it's not fighter jets. That idea misses the point of the text entirely. Forget what you've seen in the movies, and don't try to bring your own ideas into the text. These are the armies of the four demons of the Euphrates. And the most natural, simple understanding of the text is that these are an army of demons unable to act until God gives them permission. But they will be unleashed to bring death and destruction upon the people of the world. This is the context of Revelation 9. This is the second demon-inspired attack on the human race. If you were with us last week, then you know that the first attack was a swarm of locusts earlier in the chapter. They were not permitted to kill anyone during their five months of torment. But this second demonic attack will mean that the demons will be granted the ability to kill. They absolutely will be able to kill. They will inflict their plagues on the earth. But what happens to those who live through it? How will they respond during this time? Well, our last two verses give us the answer, and it's a sad, sad text. Let's read it. It says, but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorcerers, nor their sexual immorality or their thefts. Notice how verse 20 starts out, the rest of mankind who does not repent, meaning those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. 
telling us again that the 144,000 witnesses for Jesus Christ are once again protected by God from this demonic onslaught. Even more disturbing than the death and destruction that is in Revelation 9 is the reaction of the survivors of these plagues in these last two verses. This text bothers me. You see, we would like to think, we would love to think that an unbelieving world will see the supernatural events happening in their time, that they'll hear of all the disaster, and then they're finally going to receive the gospel of the coming kingdom preached by the 144,000 missionaries, that they would hear the witness of Jesus Christ and turn from their idols. We do the same thing now. We desperately hope that hardship and the fear of death that people see now will soften their hearts. But John explains to us that most people living during this time will become even more hardened against God. They will hold on to their demon worship. They're going to hold on to their idolatry because lost humanity is alienated from God. They're at war with God. John tells us they will even refuse to repent from murder and sorcery. you got to be at a pretty bad place when you don't think murder is wrong. Sorcery here, meaning the occult, witchcraft, and the use of drugs, immorality, and theft. John is telling us something. He's telling us they're going to refuse to repent or change their minds about their ungodly works. They're going to keep trusting in the demons. They're going to keep trusting in their idols rather than turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Their ears will be closed to the message of God's grace and mercy, choosing instead to accept the wrath. They're going to choose to accept the wrath and coming judgment of God. See, what Revelation is showing us right now is how hardened the heart is of an unsaved man, how hardened that heart is. About half of the world is dead by this point. I don't want you to miss this. Half the world's dead. But even this does not move the rest of the people alive in the tribulation towards God. Words of Romans 3.11 ring true. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Because here is the teaching of Revelation 9. The idols we have... The addictions that we have to the treasures, to the things of this world, the cravings that we give into, they can harden people's hearts to such a degree that the most extreme judgments will be unable to capture the world's attention. It's going to be a lawless time. The government and the people at that time will permit this depravity. They're going to allow this stuff to go on where people kill, where people steal. Because people will be led by the person Paul describes as the man of sin and the lawless one. We know him as the Antichrist. But as we said before, idolatry is not only a sin that will enslave the lost during the tribulation. It's an ever-present temptation in the lives of many, many Christians. See, this truth here, this truth in Revelation 9, it convinces me that the material things, the idols we worship, are slowly calcifying our hearts to the things of God. That's what's happening. We're calcifying our hearts to the things of God. John tells us the idols then in the tribulation can neither see nor hear nor walk. They're not the living God in heaven You see, idols are unable, absolutely unable to transform lives, to change lives, to regenerate, to bring new life, to bring purity, because these things are only found in the power and grace of God. God's judgment, God's power can cause people to fear death, and it can cause them to even fear him 
but it takes faith in Christ and God's amazing grace in order to bring new life. Let me say it like this. It takes a work of God to impart new life. Left on his own, that's your future. Revelation 9 is the future of all mankind. I love the little story I've told you before. It was the summer of 1945. World War II had ended. And World War II soldiers, former soldiers, including famous baseball stars, were starting to come back into American life. And Yankee baseball slugger Joe DiMaggio, good old Italian, he came back. And he tried to just sit in the stands for a game with his four-year-old son, Joe Jr., before he had to rejoin the team. But a, a fan noticed him. And then another fan noticed him. And soon, the entire stadium was chanting his name, Joe, Joe, Joe DiMaggio. And moved by the moment, Joe looked down to see if his young son had noticed the tribute. And he had. Little Joe looked up and said to his daddy, See, Daddy, everybody knows me. We do that, don't we? See, little Joe made the mistake of a child in assuming that all the glory at Yankee Stadium on that summer afternoon in 1945, that it belonged to him and not to his father. But we make a far less innocent mistake, far less, when we live our lives as if they were all about us and all about our glory, rather than about our Heavenly Father and His glory. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.21 that the fundamental sin of the human heart involves a purposeful failure to honor God, to give the Lord the worship that he alone is due. And you see, the problem with idols is that an idol is anything that you turn to for help when God told you to turn to him for help. Worship is when we change our minds about the things we trust in and turn our focus to the living God. You see, anything that we worship here, anything that we make an idol of here, it robs God of the true glory that belongs to him, and it belongs to him alone. Idolatry stands at the heart of humanity's rebellion against God. It leads to greater sin. You know, I'd like you to imagine just for a second that you're out on a hike on a beautiful sunny day. I know with this recent weather, it's hard to imagine a sunny day. But you're out on a hike on a beautiful sunny day, and you come to a creek. But there's something wrong with this picture. You notice that someone has dumped trash into the stream, and it's ugly. It's an ugly sight. Judging by some of the empty soda cans and the trash that's there, it's been there a long time. And it's, there's an ugly layer of, of slime that's floating on top of the water. And you decide you just can't leave it. You just can't do it. You can't just go home. You can't leave it. So you start picking up the trash. And it takes you a while. You start picking it up one piece at a time, one piece at a time, before you begin to see a difference. It takes hours. And it's amazing how much junk is there in this stream. And you sit back, and then you rest for a moment. And you realize you're going to have to keep coming back each day until the site is as clean as it should be. But when you come back the next day, it's as if your work was completely undone. There is more trash than before. There's more trash than you ever saw the first day. Somehow the garbage became worse overnight. And so for a second time, you clean up the garbage, determined to come back on day three and check on it and finish the job. But when you come back on that third day, it ha it's happened again. And you start to think 
you start to actually think about this for a second. And you start thinking that, hey, this is highly unlikely that someone came to this very spot to dump their garbage two nights in a row while you were away. So you begin to follow that creek upstream only to discover that a garbage dump has been there for years. And it's emptying all its trash and all its filth down into the creek. Your job, hear me, your job of cleaning the creek only opened up a gap for more trash to settle into. You could go and clean that creek every day for the rest of your life, but it's not going to help. Because if you want the creek to be clean, that means, hear this, going directly to the source and dealing with what's there. See, I think the church today is spending a great amount of time a great amount of money, a great amount of effort, even in the church doing trash removal downstream, trying to clean up our lives. But we need to go upstream to where the real battle is, our polluted hearts before God. See, if you want your creek to be clean, it means going directly to source and dealing with what's there. How much of your life do you spend dealing with the visible garbage rather than what it produces? I think there's a lot of Christians that are wearing themselves out, wearing themselves out doing trash removal when something upstream is still dumping, 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 dumping into the flow. And quite often for the child of God, it is the idolatry of the heart. It's the idolatry of the heart that is taking us further away from God in our condition, polluting the stream of our life. We've already been given the waters of eternal life. Didn't John tell us in John 4, 14 that Jesus said this? But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now his water is clean. His water is absolutely clean, meaning he has made us righteous in position, but sometimes we pollute our condition before him. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we draw back to God. I mentioned James 4, 8 the other week, written to Christians, written to believers in Jesus Christ. It says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So I want you to know his goodness. I want you to know his purity. I want you to know his holiness. And I want you to know his love. And look to that promise of 1 John 1, 9, written to believers, again, written to believers about our condition and not our position in Christ, where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, we'll close with this. We hold to the wonderful words of Psalm 1, which tell us, and you know it, it says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O.
P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 